Well, with the uh, Lord's help, let's turn back to Acts and uh, chapter 9, that passage we, we read together uh, tonight. With the Lord's help, we're going to look at probably the, the most famous um, conversion story in the, the whole of the Bible. Uh, it's certainly, um, arguably, the, the biggest conversion in, in, the, in the literal uh, sense of the word, because a conversion implies a a change in life, uh, a change in, in beliefs, and a change in practice. And here is about as dramatic a change as you could possibly imagine, because this is uh, a man here who is living in fierce opposition to the gospel. Um, he arguably he's he, he's the, the the strongest and the, the biggest opposer of of the gospel in the whole of Jerusalem here uh, at this time, and yet incredibly. This man is converted and by the grace of God he goes from uh, being one of the, the biggest opposers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to um, being one of the greatest ambassadors of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite an amazing change. And the experience that Saul went through here, it's a, a well-known and well uh, talked about uh, experience. You, you often hear reference to this um, Damascus Road experience. It's, uh, it's even a phrase that's probably known by people who aren't Christians and don't really know much about the Bible. You hear that phrase, a Damascus Road experience. And often if people are actually recounting their testimony, they'll, they'll refer to this. Usually in the negative, um, they'll say something along the lines of, well, I, I never had uh, a Damascus Road experience for some uh, reason, I'm not entirely sure why, but for some reason people feel the need to compare their experience um, with the experience of Saul here. And there are lots of people who actually struggle with this idea of assurance of faith, struggle with this concept of whether or not they're, they're a Christian because they've not had this kind of experience. They've not had this uh, Damascus Road experience. But what we fail to understand is that Paul's conversion here, it's by no means normative. This is by no means normative. This is unique, and it is unique for a reason, and I'll uh, touch on the, the reason for that, um, God willing, uh, towards the end of, of the sermon. It is unique. So we don't sit here thinking that we need to go through this specific kind of experience, that we need to have a Damascus Road experience before we, we come to realize that we are actually one of the Lord's people that we have been saved. So you, you don't have to have this precise type of experience. But having said that, that, there are still aspects of this conversion story which may well be paralleled in our experience. Now you're not going to have everything, and I'll explain why that is, but there are some things that you will perhaps relate to and perhaps you see it in your own conversion experience as well. And as we go through the passage, I'll try and uh, lift out some of these things and, and try and make these kind of parallels uh, with our own experience. So first of all, let's look at Saul prior to um, this conversion. Now, we're introduced to Saul back uh, in chapter um, 8 there. Now, if you, if you know chapter 8 there, that's um, when Saul, he um, stood by and he watched Stephen being killed, Stephen the martyr first martyr and Saul stood by and actually watched this um, taking place and we actually read that Saul was consenting to his death 
And when you're reading that, you're perhaps wondering, well, in what way is Saul actually involved in this? Is he just a bystander consenting to this? What's actually going on here? And then you come to, to chapter 9, the chapter that we're, we're looking at here, and you realize that uh, Saul was by no means just a bystander. And you see that very clearly here. He's not just following um, the crowd as they, as they engage in this kind of persecution of, of the Lord's people. He is a leader in it. He's not just someone who is standing there watching on. He is very much a leader in this persecution that's going on. And we see him at the, the beginning of even this chapter here. And, and he's acting like an animal. It's like an animal. And that's how the narrator is, is describing him here. Look at him at the, the first verse there portraying uh, Saul like, like this kind of a beast, like a, like a lion. The image of him breathing out threats and murder. That's the, the picture of a wild animal. It's a picture of a ferocious animal. That's the kind of image that the, the narrator is actually giving us here. And back in chapter 8 and verse 3, uh, you read there that Saul was ravaging the church. Now that word is a word like devouring. He's like an animal would devour something. He's going around like some kind of an animal trying to devour its prey. So Saul is acting very much here like an animal. He's going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And in that sense, Saul is very much working on behalf of the devil himself. Here he's being a soldier of the devil. He perhaps, well, he definitely doesn't realize it, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's acting as a, as a messenger and as a servant of the devil himself. And the, the scale of Saul's opposition here, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, he's not just content here with driving this so-called sect out of Jerusalem. Um, he wants to do more than that. He wants to chase them off the very face of the earth. He sees them um, leaving Jerusalem. He sees them going out and he sees them going to places like Damascus. And he's not happy just to say, well, at least they've left Jerusalem. I can forget about them now. No, he goes out. He goes out after them and he wants to absolutely destroy this so-called uh, sect from uh, the face of the earth. And his zeal here um, is uh, quite in incredible, really, his his boldness that you see here, remarkable. And he's, got a, he's got an undisputed passion. When, when you look at him here, you're, you're, you're marveled by that zeal and boldness. And when you're actually reading about him here and when you, you read what he's like, you, you think to yourself, well, you know, how effective, how effective this would be if these particular characteristics that this man Saul is showing here how effective it would be if, if these things were actually used for the kingdom of God? How effective would it be if these things were used in, in order to further the gospel message? And of course, that's exactly what God is uh, about to do here. Um, because God is about to, to bring a conversion around here. And he's going to turn this man's uh, zeal and this man's passion and this man's boldness. And he's going to turn it so that he will use these things for the kingdom of God. Because that's what the Lord does. That's what he does. Uh, see, we can be there with our gifts and certain characteristics. And before we're converted, we can use these things in a sinful way. Uh, we can use these things for our own ends or and for things that feed our own pride. But when the Lord comes in and when he brings about a conversion, he then uses these things, things which we used in a sinful way, and then he uses these things for the kingdom itself and for the furtherance 
of the gospel. And here you see a zealous and a passionate man. A man who God would use these things for good in the future. But right here, right now, he's using this zeal in a sinful way. And he's heading out to Damascus. And as he goes out there, he takes a lot of people with him. Uh, probably temple guards or um, soldiers of, of some kind. And they, they come with him and he goes out with one aim. He wants to destroy the Lord's people. He wants to destroy the followers of this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's on this uh, journey, you see him there, the Lord, at the beginning of the passage, the Lord intervenes. And the Lord intervenes here in, in quite an extraordinary way. It's interesting that the Lord actually takes Saul out of Jerusalem before he actually deals with him in this saving way. He takes him out of Jerusalem. And sometimes the Lord does that. Um, sometimes the Lord, what he does is he takes you out of your comfort zone. Um, he takes you away from what you know and he takes you out of there. And then when he takes you out of there, then he deals with you and then he enters into your life and actually brings about this conversion. And here, that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking Saul here away. He's taking Saul away from his usual surroundings. He's taking Saul away from his Pharisee friends. Uh, he's taking Saul away from the synagogue. He's taking Saul away from his family. He's taking Saul away from all the things that are distracting him in Jerusalem and causing a stumbling block for him. He's taking him out of there. And that's when the Lord begins to work in his life here. And sometimes God does the same thing with ourselves. Sometimes he does the same thing with ourselves. Sometimes the Lord has to remove us in some way. Now, perhaps he might do that geographically. And perhaps he might actually um, remove us from a certain place, maybe a place that we've been brought up in, a place that we know well, and he takes us out of there. And then he deals with us. Or perhaps he might do that as well socially. And perhaps he might remove us from a certain group of friends, certain people, perhaps removing us from a, a certain kind of lifestyle. And then when he takes us aside, when he removes us uh, from that, then he comes in and then he breathes new life into your soul. Uh, that can very often be the experience of a lot of people. Not everyone, but some people. That's how the Lord can work. And here, that's what happens with Saul. It's exactly what happens with Saul. He's, he's taken out of Jerusalem and then uh, the Lord is going to, to deal with him here. And on this journey in verse um, 3 there, you see that a light shone all around him from heaven. And, and this light here was so strong and so full of glory, that Saul falls to the ground. And he falls to the ground when this light shines. And a voice comes. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A tremendous sound, a tremendous sight, and a tremendous sound as well. Now, did Saul actually recognise who it was that was saying these words? Did Saul recognise the voice and who it was that was speaking? Well, when you're looking at the text here, it doesn't look as though he did, does it? It doesn't look as though he did at all, because he asks the question there, Who are you, Lord? So, he doesn't seem to know who's actually speaking here. Now, Saul should have realised who was before him. He should have. Because this man knows his Old Testament. If anyone knows his Old Testament, it's Saul. He knows his Old Testament. And he should have recognised this form of address here. When someone's name is repeated in this way, Saul, Saul, he should have recognized that. 
Straight away, he should have been reminded. Because when God spoke from heaven to the Old Testament saints, he often repeated their names. We, we read the passage in the morning, didn't we, in Genesis. Abraham, Abraham. In another place you read Moses, Moses. In another place you read Samuel, Samuel. And here we read Saul, Saul. He should have known that this was none other than the divine messenger himself. He should have recognized that. A man that knows his Old Testament very well. And as well the voice is saying, why are you persecuting me? And Saul knows fine well that he's persecuting the followers of Christ. He knows that. So for a legal mind like Saul's or like Paul's, it's for the sake of getting rid of confusion, Saul and Paul are of course the, the same person. Apologies if I mix up the names a wee bit. Uh, for a person like Saul, with a legal mind like his, he should have worked out, he should have worked out that he was being addressed here by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was appearing to him in glorious light. But he doesn't recognize. And sometimes when it comes to spiritual things, it doesn't matter how good our intellect is. And it doesn't matter how clever we are. It doesn't matter how switched on we are. Sin can hide that which is absolutely blindingly obvious. And that can happen. And for many of the Lord's people in here, you can look back and see things that are so obvious now. But you didn't see it as obvious back then. Because sin was blinding you. And here Saul should have known. He should have known. But he doesn't. Certainly he doesn't seem to. He doesn't seem to recognize it uh, straight away. And of course, uh, sometimes the same thing can happen with ourselves. You know, the Lord can be working right in front of you. He can be working right in front of your eyes. Right there. He can be working in your uh, providence. He can be right before you in, in the word itself. And in, in the things that are going on in your life. Right there. And yet you don't see it. And the reason you don't see it is because of sin. Sin is blinding you from these things. And that's exactly what seems to be happening here. And then the Lord, he makes it absolutely crystal clear to Saul. He opens Saul's eyes, spiritually speaking. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, talk about earth-shattering messages. This is quite an earth-shattering message. Because this man here... He has devoted his life, or uh, his life from this uh, moment forward, he's devoted his life to persecuting the followers of Jesus. And he's persecuting the followers of Jesus because they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. They're saying that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And, and Saul, of course, does not agree with that, and that's why he's going out, and that's why he's persecuting them. And now, here, as Jesus speaks to, to him, he realizes these people were right. I was wrong. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Jesus is indeed the Son of God. That is about as earth-shattering a message as you could ever receive. Your, your whole worldview turned upside down. Here, his, his, his worldview and how he thought is, is completely destroyed in this one moment. Because He's, he's aimed at destroying the, the this so-called cult and the, the, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's, he's realized that they're right. It's completely changed his worldview. And that earth-shattering message is, of course, a message that we will all receive one day. Every single one of us in here. 
We will all come to an understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. We will all come to an understanding that Jesus himself is the Messiah. But the solemn thing is that for some people they will realise that when it's too late. Because the Word of God tells us that a day is coming. A day is coming when every knee will bow. And when every tongue will confess. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is the Son of God himself. But for some people it will be too late. Because by that point, by the point where your knee is bowed at that end of time, the day of salvation will have come to an end. And there will be no opportunity for salvation. And my prayer is that all of us in here would come to see Jesus as our saviour today. Before it's too late. Because uh, here he appears before us in the gospel account today. Inviting you to turn to him. Inviting you to, to put your faith in him. Inviting you to experience a conversion of your own. Now he doesn't promise you bright lights. He doesn't promise you that. He doesn't promise you visions. Uh, he doesn't promise you some of these extraordinary things perhaps that uh, other people have experienced. But he does offer you a conversion. Where he calls on you to turn from your life of godlessness. To turn from your life of sin and to come and bow the knee before him. And put your faith in him and acknowledge him as your saviour. You, you will bow. Make no mistake about that. You will bow. There is no doubt about that. But the question is, will you bow as a result of the gospel call? Or will you bow as a result of that trumpet sound at the last day which will signal the end of the day of salvation? The end of that opportunity to come before the Lord and ask him to save your soul. Here, Saul is bowed. He is, he is bowed before the Lord because he's falling to the ground. He is bowing and here. Uh, he is uh, bowing in conversion and salvation. And there you have uh, what uh, people call an instantaneous conversion. A Damascus Road experience. But I want to ask the question, is it instantaneous? We, we, we were talking about this at our fellowship on Friday night when, when people have an instantaneous conversion. They say, I have a Damascus Road experience. But, but is this instantaneous? Is it an instantaneous conversion? You see, our experience of conversion is often gradual. Uh, the Lord uh, working and um, perhaps steadily in someone's life and actually bringing them uh, to uh, a knowledge of uh, salvation in himself. Now, the moment of, of salvation and the moment of regeneration, that, that, that happens in a moment. You know, salvation from that perspective is instantaneous. There is one second where you are in darkness and there is another second where you are in the light. That happens in a moment. But the thing is, it can be a gradual process sometimes for us to come to an awareness of that. And that's the way in which we say sometimes our conversion is, is gradual. And people would point to the Damascus Road experience here uh, and they would say, this is an example of a sudden conversion. A completely um, out of the blue conversion. As opposed to the gradual conversion perhaps that many of us in here um, have experienced. I know some people also have a sudden conversion. But 
for the vast majority of the Lord's people, it's a gradual process. Our awareness of it is gradual. And they'll say, this is not, this is instantaneous. But is it? Saul actually gives his testimony a, a number of times. Um, and I think that's, a, that's a, a good warrant for ourselves to actually use our uh, testimony um, in order to, to uh, spread the gospel and to, to use it in an evangelistic way. Saul does that quite often. And, and he, he gives his testimony a number of times. And if you can turn to chapter 26, chapter 26 uh, in Acts, uh, and uh, in verse uh, 14 there, it's an interesting verse here. And this is him giving his, uh, his conversion in another place. And, and he's recounting what the Lord says to him. And, and he adds a wee bit. He says uh, that the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. It's a well-known phrase as well, isn't it? Hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what's that about? What is a goat? Well, a goad is a, a long stick. It's a, it's a long stick um, with, a, with, a, with a spiked end that was used by farmers to, to, on the animals to, to move the animals. You, know, you got the animals going with, with the goad. You, you, you prodded them and you got them going. And the use of it here seems to be in line with a fairly well-known proverb in that day. And the, the proverb really here is, is likening Saul to like a young bullock. He's been likened to a young bullock and, and the farmer is the one with the goad and he's, he's trying to break the bullock in. And as he's trying to break the bullock in by, by prodding the, the bullock and, and pushing the bullock forward, the, the bullock is, is kicking against. He's, he's trying to resist, trying to resist what the farmer is trying to get him to do, resist the goad of the farmer. So the idea here is that Jesus is in some way pursuing Saul. That Jesus is in, in some way goading him, but, but Saul is kicking against him. That Saul is in some way trying to, to resist whatever it is that's going on. To resist this prodding and, and pricking that is going on. So although Saul was here pursuing uh, the Lord's people in, in persecution. It actually seems as though the Lord is also pursuing him. There's irony there too, isn't it? He's going out after the Lord's people. But it seems as though the Lord is pursuing him as well. And pursuing him uh, with this code. Now we don't know how long that might have been going on for. Certainly before the Damascus Road experience, I, I think you can safely say that there's been, there's been a God there present. But exactly how long, we, we, we don't know how long the, the, the Lord has perhaps been working at him. The, the text doesn't make that uh, clear. And we, we don't know exactly what the goads were either, but something was prodding him. Something was, something was getting to him. Something was, was pricking his conscience and he was kicking against it. Now, some people think, well, maybe it was um, the, the death of Stephen, the martyr. You know, maybe that, when he saw that young man, and when he saw Stephen being martyred in that way, and, and how he died, and how he remained faithful to the Lord, even to the point of death, perhaps that maybe made Saul think, wait a second, maybe there's something in this. Maybe when, when he saw the, the glory of Christ reflected in the, the, the face of Stephen as he, as he died, maybe... Maybe that made him think about these things, rethink these things. Or perhaps it was just the fact that Saul was just starting to doubt his own belief systems in general. Maybe he was, he was doubting what he believed. Um, he thought Jesus, of course, was an imposter, 
a blasphemer, but maybe at this point he's starting to go back on that. Maybe for some reason that we don't know, he's starting to doubt. And if he was um, beginning to, to doubt his own belief system, then maybe that's the reason why he upped his level of aggression here. And, and he, he definitely does up his level of aggression here towards the Lord's people. Perhaps he felt weak for allowing himself to even consider that this might be true. Perhaps he felt weak for allowing himself to, 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 to doubt his own belief system, to allow himself to be goaded in this way. Uh, and in order to quash this, he ups his aggression. He ups his persecution level. And that can sometimes uh, happen with sinners. And when God is uh, working in them, their, their conscience uh, begins to get the better of them. Uh, and they're aware of the goads of uh, the Lord at work. And pushing them, pushing them towards salvation perhaps. Pushing them towards the things of God. And many people who experience that, they don't like it. They don't like it, they don't like it at all and they, they try and resist it and they, they try and kick against it. And, and very often perhaps what people do is turn to an even more sinful course of action to try and deaden that. And that is something that happens. And perhaps there are some people in here who can relate to that. You're aware of the goods, you're aware of the Lord almost kind of prodding you and pricking your conscience, convicting you, pushing you along and, and, and you, you want to get rid of it. So to get rid of it you, you, you turn to an even more sinful course of action. You, you, you try and harden yourself. It's a very common thing to do. And uh, that may well be something that you've done uh, yourself. But you realize that it is impossible to kick against the goats. Because when the Lord is working in your life. And when the Lord is, is drawing you in with his cords of grace and love. When he's doing that. You can try and resist. But it's impossible. It's impossible. You can try and resist for a time. But after a while you'll see that it is absolutely irresistible. Because the grace of God drawing you in cannot be resisted. When the Spirit is at work in your heart like that, it cannot be resisted. And there comes a point where we stop resisting. And we fall before the Lord. And we say what Saul says in the passage in Acts 9. Lord, what do you want me to do? And I wonder... If you are kicking against these goats here today. Now maybe, maybe you felt the hound. The hound of heaven itself chasing you. And maybe he has been prodding you. Maybe he has been coming with this goad and working in your life. Maybe through the word itself. Maybe through your own reading of it. And maybe through the witness of others. Maybe through the preaching of it. Maybe through your providence. Things that are going on and things that are happening in your life and you're aware of, of these goods and you try and resist them but is it not time that you stopped? Is it not time that you stopped kicking against it? Is it not time that you stopped resisting the Lord? Resisting and the strivings of the Spirit? Is it not time for you to fall before Him and ask Him to be your Lord and your saviour. Don't keep kicking against the goads. And in verse 7. The men who were um, with Saul. And who were standing there. They were completely speechless. Now they didn't know exactly what was going on. They, they, they didn't know exactly what was, was going on. They knew something quite incredible was happening. But they didn't know exactly what was 
going on because they, they weren't fully aware of what was happening. This was hidden from them. See, this was for Saul. It was for Saul and for Saul alone. And that's, a, that's an important um, point because that, that reminds us that conversion, conversion is a very personal thing. The Lord deals with us as individuals. We all have um, the Lord's people, we all have different experiences of the Lord bringing us to faith. The Lord doesn't convert people in the same way or using the same testimony, so to speak. The Lord deals with us individually. Conversion is individual. A conversion is something that is very personal and something that is very intimate. It's an intimate interaction with the Lord. And here, Saul is being converted and the others, they're not aware of everything that's going on because this is for Saul. Personal to him. Yes, they would have been impacted about what was going on and the change in Saul's life, but, but a lot of it was hidden. It was for Saul and Saul himself. And sometimes when the Lord is speaking to you, um, it's a very personal thing. And especially when it comes to conversion, it's almost as though there can be nobody else in the room and the word comes and it's just for you. Others perhaps might not be aware of what's going on, but you are. You are and you, you feel as though the Lord is speaking to you and you alone. That's what the word of God can do. And that's what very often happens in conversion. That's what you, you see here. And Saul gets up off uh, the ground and, and he's blind. He's blind and the Lord uh, tells him to go to uh, Damascus until he receives instruction about uh, what he, he's to do uh, next. So the men here, they, they lead this uh, blind Saul to, to Damascus. And when you look at that, what a massive turnaround in the events here. Uh, because at the beginning, you saw Saul like a, like a raging beast. Like, like an animal. And he was going out angry at the Lord's people. And he was leading this army of temple police or um, soldiers behind him. And as he was going out, he was, he was fierce. And now, all of a sudden, it's, it's completely changed. And here, you see him like a tame, blind lamb. And he's being led. A complete transformation. And that's the kind of transformation that the gospel brings. And that's a reminder to us, isn't it? That the gospel can have that transforming effect in anyone's life. And as I mentioned in, was it in prayer earlier on, I mentioned the fact that sometimes um, we, we, we don't go with the gospel to certain people because we think they're so far off, they're so far removed, as though the, the, the depths that they're in and the, the lives that they're leading means that they're never going to be transformed by the gospel. That's not the case. We ought never to think like that. Because here is an example of the transforming power of the gospel. Because if you were to say, who is the least likely man in the whole, or person in the whole of Jerusalem there to be converted, you would have said this man. I, I imagine most of the Christians that were around would have, would have run away from, from witnessing to Saul. But this man, he's transformed by the gospel, the power of the gospel. And the Lord sends Ananias then to heal him of his blindness. Once he, once, uh, he gets to, to uh, Damascus and uh, Ananias is uh, understandably scared. He, he, he says, I know about Saul. I know what he does. I know what he does to people like me. Uh, and he's quite resistant. But the Lord said, no Ananias. Behold, he is praying. Behold, he is praying. Now, on one level, that's nothing new for Saul. Saul is a Pharisee. Uh, Pharisees love to pray. They would pray for a long time. They would repeat things. Prayer was, uh, of course, a, a big part of their lives. But here it's as though when the Lord says, behold, he is praying. It's as though he's praying for the first time. 
It's as though the Lord is saying, now Saul is praying as a broken sinner before his Lord and his Saviour. So Ananias goes. And, and that's exactly what uh, happens to, to any new convert. You know, maybe, maybe you've always prayed. Uh, I'm speaking to those who, are, who aren't saved just now. Maybe you've always prayed or maybe you've always, maybe you learned a prayer, for example, when you were young. And it's something that's maybe stayed with you. And, and maybe if you're in emergency situations, health issues, finance, family issues, maybe then you send emergency prayers. Perhaps you've always prayed uh, in that sense. But when you're converted, when you fall before the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, it's different. It's as though you're praying for the very first time. And it's no longer empty, meaningless words. It's no longer like you're speaking to yourself. That's how it felt like before when you prayed. But when you're converted, that's not what it's like. All of a sudden, you're in communication with a living Savior and you're aware of that. Behold, he is praying. That's the mark of the fact that he's saved. In a way, it doesn't have to say he's been converted because it says, behold, he is praying. That's a mark of the Lord's people. Behold, he is praying. Behold, she is praying. But as Ananias goes to, to Saul here, He's not, he's not only going to heal Saul of his blindness. He's going to pass on a message of commissioning. That's, that's what's going on here. He's going to pass on a message of commissioning. As you see Saul here entering into the role of a gospel missionary. As you see him entering into the role of an apostle. That's why Ananias is going. Not just to, to open his eyes. But to pass on this message of commissioning. And you see that in verse 15 of the passage. But the Lord uh, said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So it's a commissioning. He's been, he's, this is part of his commissioning as an apostle. Now, as we've gone through this, this uh, narrative, I've tried to, to, to pull out some of the parallels that we can experience um, in our uh, conversions, and everyone has different experiences, but I've tried to make the point that none of us are going to have a Damascus Road experience. None of us. None of us are going to have a Damascus Road experience. And the reason for that is this. We are not apostles. And we're not going to be an apostle. See, one of the criteria for becoming an apostle was that you had to have witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You had to be a witness to the resurrection. And the other apostles, they had already witnessed that. They had witnessed that with the initial resurrection of, of Christ. But Paul hasn't. Saul hasn't. He hasn't, at this stage, witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And what Saul saw here on the Damascus Road was none other than the risen Lord himself in this um, glorious appearing. And that is, no doubt, what left this man blind here. He glimpsed the glory. Of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He glimpsed it. Because to be an apostle he had to. He had to see that. So this uh, conversion experience here. It's, it's a unique experience. It's no way meant to be an example of something. That every one of us have to experience in our own lives. In order that we might be converted. You are not going to be an apostle. None of you here are. None of us are going to be an apostle. So we cannot expect this kind of experience. But yet, as I've also mentioned, you can still draw these parallels of uh, the, the things that go on in, in Saul's experience here that we can relate to. We might not have the visions. We might not see the bright light of, of Christ 
appearing to us. But there are much of these other things that I've touched on uh, that we can experience and we do experience. And this uh, powerful conversion uh, story here, it shows us that, as I mentioned earlier, no one, absolutely no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. No matter how, no matter how evil you are, no matter how violent your past is, uh, no matter how, how dark your sin is, no matter what damage you've done to the cause of Christ, because this man, he tried to do great damage to the cause of Christ, no matter what you have done, the Lord can save you. The Lord can take the hardest of heart, the hardest of heart, like this man here, and he can penetrate it with the gospel. And he can bring forth new life, a new worldview, new direction, new purpose. The Lord can do that. And he does that with the gospel message itself. So today, if you are like Saul, kicking against the goats, the Lord is working there. If you're aware of him, stop kicking. Stop kicking and bow down. And take him as your Lord and Saviour. Ask him to save you tonight. If you do that, he promises. He'll save you. My prayer is that we through each one of us in here. Let's uh, bow our heads. Lord, Our Heavenly Father. Uh, we give you thanks. That your grace is powerful. That your grace is able to transform in miraculous ways. And there is not one heart in here tonight that is not able to be broken by the grace of God. And we pray that as your word is read and sung and proclaimed this evening, that that word would indeed go out like a double-edged sword, a double-edged dagger, and that it would penetrate into the hearts of every single one of us, but especially into the hearts that are closed off to the gospel, hearts that are hard to the gospel. May the, go may the gospel penetrate in and may it bring that new life. We give you thanks for the experience of Saul there and the ways in which perhaps we can relate to certain aspects. Yes, we will not see necessarily the risen Lord Jesus Christ before us in his glory, but yet we can experience a conversion. We can experience a turning and we do. And our prayer is that every one of us would experience that even this evening. So go before us, cleanse us from our sin. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing now in Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Page 419. We'll sing the whole psalm. In Zion's bondage, God turned back as men that dreamed were we. Then filled with laughter was our mouth, our tongue with melody. And among the heathen said, The Lord great things for them hath wrought. The Lord hath done great things for us when joy to us is brought. As streams of water in the south, our bondage, Lord, we call, who sow in tears. A reaping time of joy. In joy they shall. And of course, Saul himself, after his conversion, he was, as we read, going to have to suffer many things 
as he went out scattering him the seed of the gospel. That man who bearing precious seed in going forth doth mourn, he doubtless bringing back his sheaves, rejoicing shall return. So we'll sing the whole psalm there, we'll stand to sing to God's praise. Rejoicing shall return. 